From the studio on the University of Georgia campus, this is Unscripted. I'm your host, Alan Fleury. On each episode of Unscripted, I'll be talking to scholars, artists, journalists, and leaders from all corners of the Franklin College of Arts and Sciences, as well as guest speakers and lecturers to the UGA campus. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Unscripted. On September 21st, the University of Georgia Bulldogs and the University of Notre Dame Fighting Irish will meet in Athens for the second leg in the home-and-home series between the two college football powers. Off the field, the two universities share a vision for scholarly collaboration also in its second year, the Berlin Seminar in Transnational European Studies. A joint initiative of UGA's Franklin College of Arts and Sciences and Wilson Center for Humanities and Arts and Notre Dame's Nanovic Institute for European Studies, the Berlin Seminar is a week-long residency in early June focused on advancing the discourse on both campuses of issues related to Europe, the EU, and Germany's role in the European Union. Joining us today on Unscripted is Martin Kogel, A.G. Steer Professor of German at UGA, Associate Dean in the Franklin College, and Co-Director of the Berlin Seminar. Martin, welcome to the program. So, how did the idea for a collaboration with Notre Dame originate? Well, it originated uh, in an article that uh, my colleague Bill Donahue and I wrote for the Chronicle of Higher Education a few years ago. And the article focused on uh, our field, which is German studies. And it uh, made the argument that German studies in its current configuration doesn't really represent Germany anymore because uh, the political situation in Germany had changed, it had become part of the European Union, and uh, we needed to consider Germany within Europe more broadly and move to a different kind of representation of national literatures and cultures. I see. So that's that's where we get to transnational European studies. So maybe we should drop back and define exactly what we're talking about when we say that. So the term transnational in its most direct form means uh, beyond national borders. But the way we conceptualize it is that it reflects the flow of ideas, of people, of goods, services, capital among different nations. So the reality of the European Union, for example, right now is that there is no one single nation, but there is a group of nations And within those nations, ideas migrate, literatures migrate, political policies migrate. They go back and forth. uh, They influence each other. And that's what the term signifies. The seminar is not about the EU, even though I use the EU as example uh, frequently. It's about Europe, and Europe is larger than the European Union. We should probably clarify that. There are 28 EU member states. Right. But there are more countries. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, one of the largest European countries, Russia. It's not part of the European Union. <laughs> That's you know? a very good example. So. <laughs> okay. okay, so yes. And there are countries that are part of the core, but then there are aspirational countries, you know, people, uh, countries that are currently under consideration to become member states. Mm-hmm. They're countries that uh, partake in the currency union and the Schengen Agreement. The Schengen Agreement is the agreement that is the open borders agreement so that you don't have to take, show your passport. But not all European countries do, and not all, even not all European member states. For the seminar, If I may add that, um, transnational means a couple of other things as well. First of all, the seminar is not Eurocentric. 
So transnational means that we also look beyond European borders and that we're interested in the relationship between Europe and uh, other continents, other nations outside of Europe. The themes of this year's seminar were, appropriately enough, migration, populism, and nationalism. And these are phenomena that are taken directly from today's headlines, but at the same time, the developments push and pull from deeper historical currents that might have receded from memory into history to some extent. How do scholars, and at the same time journalists and politicians and judges and artists, cross the divide between the topicality and its history? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, sometimes we do uh, include historians among the panelists, and uh, they do look back uh, at kind of transnational moments in European history, which were moments, let's say, in 1918, 1945, so the end of World War I, the end of World War II, 1968, very important, the uh, uh, student revolt across uh, both Western and Eastern Europe at the time. And then 1989, uh, you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall and uh, the dissolution of uh, communist regimes in Europe. So those are important kind of transnational moments that relate to very strongly to the contemporary history of Europe. Seminar's focus is on contemporary Europe overall. Uh, so the journalists that we invite the, this past year, for example, we invited uh, Adam Nossiter, who is the Paris Bureau Chief of the New York Times, who spoke to us about the Yellow Vest movement. We had uh, Tom Nuttall, who is the Berlin Bureau Chief of The Economist. Uh, they, who spoke to us about German, current German politics, and um, their focus is very much in the present. When we have discussions, we as Americans go to Europe to talk to European experts about Europe. One purpose of this is to have another angle on our own experience here in the United States. Do you think we have any misperceptions about how fluid the relationships might be between the U.S. and the countries within the EU? Uh, I think so. I mean, I my one reason why we created the seminar was because we felt that the discussion on our campuses about Europe were not as uh, active, as vibrant, as contentious, as rich and substantive as they are in Europe itself. Europe still seems to be far away or is m often seen as a vacation destination but not as a political entity or as a political theater uh, that is incredibly educational to observe uh, also with regard to you know, the politics, the economy, uh, other related discussions in this country. And so many of these things are building off of things that may have happened in the past, but perhaps they're coming to fruition now. And we can just take one of those panels as an instance of that, the, um, the France in crisis with Adam Nossiter of the New York Times. Can you give me a, your, your version of, of how the discussion of the Yellow Vest protest went? Well, Nasser is a very interesting person, first of all. He was a journalist in Africa. He won a Pulitzer Prize for his reporting or leading a team, a New York Times team, that reported on the Ebola crisis. So, and he's currently writing quite a bit about Algeria and the political crisis there. Uh, so he has a very broad perspective uh, on France, on French immigration. Um, the, our discussion centered on interactions that he had with the French president, uh, Emmanuel Macron, and uh, you know, 
interviews that he did in different parts of France with Yellow Vest protesters. The gist of it is that, or was, that, you know, the Yellow Vest protesters, they're not an organized political movement. Uh, they're a political movement that exists in other countries as well that is, expresses simply frustration with the current political state. And uh, it's perhaps unusual in France because it was very violent protest at times. Um, and uh, it seemed very raw. And it seems like it's ongoing as well. Did you, I'm curious about the interaction between a journalist like him and uh, scholars, you know, people who are primarily, they're, they're in archives, they're in the classroom, they're on campuses. Um, what's that interaction like? That's an interesting question as well. Um, I think after our session, he came up to me and uh, mentioned that he enjoyed so much the intelligent questions that he <laughs> got from uh, this audience. So we have a total of 20 seminar participants. All of them are university faculty and PhD students, uh, nine from Notre Dame, 11 from the University of Georgia. And they come from a large variety of different fields. So uh, this past year, we had 12 different disciplines represented. We sit around a table, and Adam Nosser is the expert, and he fields our questions, but the questions dig very deep, and that's very special about this interaction. As a journalist, you know, you're often invited, especially as the New York Times journalist, to panels, public panels, and people will ask you fairly superficial questions. But <laughs> right. in the two hours that we had with him, uh, we can, you know, dig deeper and uh, really pursue a discourse and a dialogue that he is not used to, and I think he appreciated that quite a bit. It's interesting because uh, the number of participants suggests that the uh, seminar is limited in number, but very ambitious in scope. That is absolutely true. Uh, I want to give you another example. Uh, this year, we had one of Germany's constitutional court judges mm. uh, at the seminar. So the German constitutional court is similar, but also dissimilar from uh, the American Supreme Court, but it has the same status in the country. And having one of those judges, Susanne Bear, come to our group to talk to us for two hours about decisions the court makes, about how the court functions, uh, how it relates to the European Union, uh, is just something that is awesome because she is so incredibly impressive and articulate and knowledgeable and so incredibly busy and, uh, um, you know, uh, in demand that uh, I think, uh, you know, it, this interaction expresses kind of the ambition of the seminar. We don't just want to talk with anybody. We want to talk with people at the highest level who are true experts, uh, outstanding in their field, and really build jointly a body of knowledge that, the faculty and graduate students can take back to, uh, to uh, bring back to our institutions and work, use in their teaching or in their interactions with students. It's interesting because it's, an, it's a very uh, particular kind of research that, that the participants are availed of when you have direct contact with expert, experts such as that, similar to what students might have in a classroom with an expert, and yet the faculty are in, a, in an open forum with an expert like a judge. That is very interesting because the group of participants also possesses a lot of expertise. These are people who have published. Some of them are endowed professors. 
uh, all of them have uh, disciplinary expertise, and yet they submit to a kind of collective inquiry that we're enabling, uh, which consists of the group together trying to discuss, interact with the experts uh, in European politics, journalism, uh, economics. Indeed, I'd like to digress on a couple of other of the, uh, seminar, the seminar subjects. Um, sea Watch is really interesting. Uh, the migration presentation that featured speakers from this group, which is a nonprofit organization that conducts civil search and rescue operations in the central Mediterranean. In the presence of the humanitarian, the humanitarian crisis, Sea Watch provides emergency relief capacities, demands, and pushes for rescue operations by the European Union institutions and stands up publicly for legal escape routes. Now, now, that is such a dramatic and ongoing situation. I'm sure that everyone was kind of spellbound by this presentation. That's absolutely true. And I'm, I was glad that we started with that. So the first day of the seminar focused on Italy. Um, uh, our morning presentation was by Sea-Watch. In the afternoon, we had uh, Lucia Annunziata, the Huffington Post correspondent for Italy, and Mark Gilbert, an Italian historian, uh, with us. Uh, but Sea-Watch opened up, um, maybe I can explain the situation briefly that they're involved in. It's a German NGO that owns a large ship that operates in the Mediterranean between Libya and Italy. And there are many African, and you can read about this in the paper practically every day, mm -hmm. uh, African refugees travel through Libya trying to reach a European border to apply for asylum. Prior to coming to Libya, they often have already gone far through Africa, so they're exhausted, they're often traumatized, sometimes with families. In Libya itself, sometimes they're detained in camps. Uh, the political situation there is uh, not very stable. Now, there's the Libyan Coast Guard, which is armed, and has been trained in part by the European Union. Uh, their boats are maintained in Europe, actually. Um, and then there's the Italian border, and then there are the open waters. So the refugees, they are out on these rubber boats that are not very safe, uh, that are most certainly not going to get them across the Mediterranean to Italy. And Sea-Watch locates them through an airplane that they own or via radar and then tries to help them uh, off that boat onto their own boat. Uh, these are very risky operations on the open sea, and sometimes they happen in close proximity to the armed Libyan Coast Guard, so, mm -hmm. which is also uh, difficult. Um, so there are antagonisms on, on either side, really. Absolutely, yeah. And it's a dangerous, physically dangerous situation. And what you see is uh, that uh, refugees are drowning in the Med Mediterranean, mm -hmm. so not all of them survive. Some of them are safe. Those that are saved are often uh, physically injured or traumatized or both. Some of them are minors. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them are children, uh, small children. Uh, and Sea-Watch is then taking these people in, and they are trying to uh, enter a port in Italy. But Italy, uh, in its current uh, political configuration, will not allow them to enter the port. And that causes you know, a lot of crisis situations. 
So I, I mentioned the involvement of the European Union uh, because it shows a different side of Europe. We often think of Europe as very progressive and as open-armed, and that is true to, to a large extent. But there's also another side, which is that e Europe or the European Union does not want to open its borders to anybody. Uh, and it wants to keep these people, and when I say these people, I'm just saying it because... Uh, you know, I'm I'm not trying to talk to about them as like a single group, but mm -hmm. uh, these individual people that I don't know, uh, um, the African refugees, uh, it, it doesn't want to allow them in, and it does prevent it at the risk of people losing their lives and. You know, there are many, many, many people. It's not a case of 10 or 20, mm -hmm. uh, but many, many people drown in the Mediterranean trying desperately to flee. Now, the position of the Italian government, and they're about to pass legislation uh, this week, actually, about this matter is that the NGO ships aid uh, human traffickers. Ah. And that is their argument why they do not want to let them dock in the ports uh, of Italy. The numbers don't support this claim, but it's a position that's taken within Europe, not just in Italy, but at other places as well. I think it is important for Sea-Watch that people in the U.S., scholars, know about their work. Uh, and it's an important part of a more general political situation that Europe is facing. So I think that was our goal. It was educational and mm -hmm. it was supposed to highlight um, uh, the you know question of immigration, which is virulent, not just in Europe, but obviously also in the United States. And what comes through about that, the, the primary thing without even getting in any proximity to a solution is just the complexities involved. I mean, you explained very clearly that there are there are different sides of the actual water with different different perspectives on the people trying to change where they can live yes and i mean both sides have arguments uh legitimate arguments i think to make i think nobody flees their home country unless they're really desperate mm -hmm. uh no african would take the risk to try to cross the Mediterranean in a rubber boat unless they were desperate to reach a place where they can survive. But many people within European countries, let's take the example of Italy, are also desperate. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the government is not very stable right now. Uh, the economy is suffering. You know, there's a lot of inequality, just like in other European countries, uh, between segments of the population. Like, they're very rich people, but then there are a lot of people who have no perspective, basically. I mean, Lucia Annunziata, she uh, said a sentence in the afternoon session that stuck with me. She says, there's this whole group of people in Rome who live in public housing, and she said their lives are flat. And what she was trying to express was that there's no expectation that the life is ever going to get better mm. because there is no possibility of actual economic mobility uh, into a different segment of the society. 
So you have to understand those people's perspective as well. Uh, uh, those are, you know, the supporters of the conservative parties in Italy right now, or some of the right wing parties in Italy also. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can't roundly dismiss it. So I think an issue like that, you know, it kind of crystallizes all these different elements uh, that are at play in the European Union, like discontent in the nations, uh, the question of migration, um, the question of, you know, an equal share uh, of the wealth uh, that is present in Europe and uh, the lack of political solutions in light of these problems. And this this is a situation that is in no sense foreign to this country either. I would say so, and that's part of the purpose of the seminar, really. I mean, a lot of things that play out in the European theater play out in relation to the United States. Right. I mean, Europe is, and it's maybe important to remind uh, listeners of that, is the world's largest economy. It's not China, it's not the U.S., it's the European Union. So it is a very powerful entity, but obviously... Uh, you know, relationship, transatlantic relationships are always in play in some way, shape, or form. And that's also a transnational relationship. So America is present in European politics and European thinking, uh, a cultural relations, and that's something that interests us also. Unscripted is a production of the Franklin College of Arts and Sciences, the oldest, largest, and most academically diverse college at the University of Georgia. More than 650 faculty members provide instruction in every classical discipline and all branches of empirical inquiry. Critical thinking skills, from languages and literature to biological sciences, build the foundation for every profession as they empower students to be informed, engaged citizens. For more on the Franklin College, visit franklin.uga.edu. Welcome back to Unscripted. I'm speaking with UGA professor Martin Kogel, co-director of the Berlin Seminar in Transnational European Studies. Take the example of climate change, another important issue in the seminar. Germany, for instance, is a country that has a very ambitious plan uh, about uh, independence from fossil fuels. But they cannot operate this plan independently because they're part of the European Union. There are other countries in Europe, Poland, for example, which has a more developing economy. They're very dependent on coal. Uh, and it's not possible to tell the Poles, you know, abandon coal, go to wind and solar power, but you also don't want to give up. Uh, Europeans are very preoccupied with climate change at this time. Um, you, you also don't want to give up on your ambition mm-hmm. to be energy or to be uh, fossil fuel independent. So this negotiation is a transnational negotiation, but in a way it reflects discussions in this country, of course, you know, about uh, what kind of energy sources we should use and the uh, um, um, significance of climate change uh, with regard to the U.S. economy and in other sectors. It was interesting, we visited uh, with the German Energy Agency, which is a government-funded, part government-funded, part uh, private industry-funded agency, and the person we visited with, Christina Haferkamp, is actually a UGA alumna. Ah. <laughs> she was here uh, as an LLM student, so a master, a student who obtained a Master of Law at the University of Georgia. So we had a few go dogs. Oh, that's really interesting. That's <laughs> <laughs> really, yeah, it's, it's, it's great to have allies there in that sense. Absolutely. Um, staying on that subject for just a, another, another minute, it, 
um, in the area of climate change, the leadership, the, the innovative ideas, not just the ideas, but the practices, they seem to be Eurocentric to a great extent. Is there a way that ideas like that or the um, lessons, let's say, from practice can be brought back into the classroom? How, how do those experiences come back to campus? The European Union, you know, is one of its values that it also uh, propagates, especially under the leadership of Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron, so uh, France and Germany, is that we are, that it's a green, that they are moving towards a green economy. Mm-hmm. In part, that is ideological. I mean, when you look at kind of environmental movements within Europe, which are also transnational, because, you know, coal, ash, uh, pollution doesn't stop at national borders. Right. You can see that it's more, it's, this is a more recent development. So what I'm trying to say is like uh, the European Union takes claim for something that they, at least historically, have not always lived up to, to certain values. But these values, they have an effect well across the European borders. And uh, my example is this. There was uh, an article a few years ago by the Columbia legal scholar, Anu Bradford, which was called The Brussels Effect. And the article uh, elaborated on the effect that European Union policies have outside of the European Union. Because if you live in Peru or you live in other parts of the world and you want to trade with the European Union, you have to adapt to European Union law mm-hmm. and with labor regulations, uh, materials that you use, trade regulations, and so on and so forth. And these laws communicate values. They're, and one of the values is to be environmentally sound. Mm-hmm. So I think our seminar functions in the same way. I mean, there's a Berlin effect on campus because we take away an understanding of the values that uh, are communicated to us in the course of the seminar. And in some cases, we can directly talk to the students and say, like, well, this is what uh, I learned in the discussion in Berlin. But in other ways, we can very indirectly talk to the students about you know, kind of communicating these values that we know exist in other countries or in, in the European Union. Right, so and it's still separate. a political issue of, of the countries that want to join, the countries that maybe want to leave. Yeah. <laughs> which was also part of the seminar, the discussions about Brexit. Yeah, and those are uh, were some of the most lively and interesting discussions. So we had a fantastic speaker, um, Fintan O'Toole, who won the award for European columnist of the year last year uh, he is a columnist uh, for the Irish Times and uh, also a professor at Princeton University um, and uh, Fintan O'Toole you know gave a presentation on his new book uh, whose thesis it is that uh, in the light of Brexit England or Britain is currently posturing as a country that is being colonized by the European Union, whereas they are or were one of the most powerful colonial powers. Uh, But that's how the political discourse has changed and uh, uh, it shows you you how nonsensical the whole uh, Brexit discussion is Mm -hmm. uh, because it is really an ideological discussion more than anything else. 
The Irish perspective is very important because one of the points of contention is the Irish-Irish border. So there's a part of Ireland, Northern Ireland, that belongs politically to England, culturally to Ireland. And then there's the Republic of Ireland, uh, which is an independent country member of the European Union. So that border is uh, in discussion because if the border were to be closed, it might bring about uh, conflict or it might bring back conflict that existed prior to the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, so, you know, political terrorism uh, originating in Ireland or having Irish people suffer from uh, would return. And so it's a very contentious issue at the time, and it's unsolved because if the border remained open, then there would be an opening for trade uh, without control that England wants to have. Right. Is this a so-called backstop? Yes. Okay. Boris Johnson was uh, this week, actually. He was in Germany, and uh, he was soliciting perhaps help from the German chancellor, Angela Merkel, but she told him flat out that that was his problem. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. Not, and not hers, and that he would have to negotiate that with the European Union, and I think the, a solution hasn't been found. They, they, they are not going to jeopardize the Good Friday Agreement, it sounds like. It's an open question. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think there is a lot more. Uh, Finn O'Toole, the previously was also a presenter at the seminar, and he gave a very interesting presentation about uh, the choice of citizenship that you have in Northern Ireland as a model and as something that kind of undermines this idea of nativity or nativism and you know nationalism because uh, it could be an example for everybody who could choose to live in this or that country because of the cultural affinity or uh, values and norms that each the country uh, represents. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, I'm not a political scientist, so uh, other people can speak more competently than I can about this. Uh, but it's definitely, it's clearly, it's, it's the question that is the most critical right now in the Brexit discussion. But I like your perspective on it not being a political scientist, actually, because <laughs> what you gathered from these discussions is really the, the gist of what we're talking about today, even. Um, and as I alluded to earlier, there were some extraordinary arts components to the seminar, both literary and the seminar included a film screening as well as a presentation by the film's director on transnational Europe and German cinema. Right. So... The seminar tries to represent as many perspectives as possible. So we do, we do, we're not just a political seminar, but we talk about, you know, we talk about energy, we talk about culture, um, we talk about policy in a broader sense, about history. Uh, so this last year, we had two presentations from the visual arts. Uh, one was by a Ukrainian photographer who talked about disappearing rural life in the Ukraine. Uh, and a series of wonderful pictures, award-winning photographs uh, that she had exhibited uh, that showed how the inhabitants uh, of Euro Ukrainian villages get older and older because the young people all go away to work in the cities uh, uh, and the effect of this on these villages. This year, we had a, a Turkish-German filmmaker who just won the award for Best Debut Film at the Berlin Film Festival in February this year. And his film, Orai, 
focuses on Muslim protagonist uh, who uh, lives in a Muslim community and is trying to make sense of his life in this community within a German context. and we watched the film in one of the most heavily Muslim districts of Berlin. <laughs> uh, and then we uh, talked to him a couple days later uh, for a couple hours about this film. And it's a really remarkable film. Um, also because it uses, uh, it features many languages that are not translated. Uh, so you During uh, the film? They're during not tra- the film, wow. yeah. I mean, it's, you know, there are enough, uh, we talked to him about this and he said, well, there are enough words in there, some of the words, you know, that people understand so they can make sense of what the dialogue is. But sometimes within the community, um, you know, the language is Turkish or uh, there was a Romanian dialect that was spoken, um, Arabic. So not everything had to be translated. So you had the sense of this um foreignness but also the appeal of it it was very intriguing uh, and it showed that uh, these communities exist as kind of parallel communities in a German society I wouldn't necessarily say that they're not part of German society they are uh, but they're not fully integrated uh, it's perhaps also not necessary mm-hmm. um, but uh, it's certainly interesting to yeah. observe and what the film was about was really about the clash of traditional Muslim and kind of more modern German values in that community. So is that, is that melange of languages and cultures, is that indicative of Berlin itself today? It is. uh, I would say definitely it's indicative of Brussels too. Actually, Mm. if you walk the streets of Brussels, you hear not just English and French uh, and uh, Dutch and German, but you hear maybe seven or eight different languages, many you can't immediately identify because mm. they're, you know, the European Union is a large group and there are people from all countries there who all speak different languages. So um, the multilingual aspect is definitely important. Uh, another person that we had at the seminar was a Jewish-Russian author, Sasha Mariana Salzman. And in her novel, uh, which is also an award-winning new novel that has just been translated into English, Beside Myself, uh, there are also several languages featured, Turkish, Russian, and then German and English, and they're also not translated. Uh, I mean, they're not like whole paragraphs. It's more like sentences or expressions, mm-hmm. but it also reflects kind of the multilingual nature of living in Europe these days. The novel is very interesting. Um, uh, Zasha Zaltzman emigrated with her parents uh, in the 1990s from Russia to Germany. But the novel was actually written in Istanbul, where she had a fellowship. So here was a Russian-born German writing author in Istanbul writing about her experiences in all three countries. Uh, So if you want a transnational novel, that is certainly one. Wow, you heard it here first. Um, So um, are plans afoot for next year's seminar? Uh, We're starting. So uh, the seminar is funded by the Max Carter Foundation, a German-American foundation uh, in New York. And each year we return to the foundation and report on the seminar and hope that the foundation will continue with its funding. So uh, we're meeting with the foundation in September. Uh, Based on that funding, then, you know, other contributors provide uh, funds for the seminar. Uh, the Franklin College, uh, my dean, has been very generous. Uh, the Wilson Center, you mentioned already, for Humanities and Arts, uh, has been gener- very generous. And then the Nanovic Institute, uh, 
for European studies at Notre Dame has been very generous. So all these things coming together allow us then to actually plan the seminar. But we've reserved the seminar room and the hotel, and we're planning another uh, really interesting slate of presentations for this coming year. Well, it's obvious why there's so much widespread support for this seminar. What a fantastic experience. I know it's an organizational challenge, but it sounds like it's continuing to be very, very fruitful. Um, Martin Coggle, thanks so much for joining us today, giving us so much great insight about the Berlin Seminar, Transnational Europe, and the way our world is changing. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here.